Welcome to Not Your Average BS, where we talk about what everybody else is thinking. I'm Shannon. What's up, you all? Happy Monday. Happy day after Valentine's Day. I hope that whoever you celebrated, however you celebrated, you are full of love, whether you were with your family, your friends, your galantine, your significant other, or yourself. Because as we always like to say on the podcast, self-love is the best kind of love and self-care is the best way to care for yourself, not only on Valentine's Day, but every day of the year. So I hope that you enjoyed the holiday. Some of you might have off today, being that it is President's Day. So if you're enjoying the long weekend or using some PTO time, you know, wherever you're at, whatever you're doing today, I hope that you're in good spirits. So before we jump into today's episode, I just wanted to quickly remind you all that we still are doing the partnership with Block Love CLT, which is a Charlotte nonprofit that gives back to the homeless community in our area. A few episodes ago, we had Satori Array on, who is a teacher in Dallas, Texas, but also a huge strong proponent of community organizing and really hit hard on the fact that, you know, while giving to national and international organizations is super important and awesome, the work is truly done within your community. And even if it's just giving $5 or sharing a Facebook post, we can really do a lot of amazing work within our own community. So, during Black History Month, Brandy and I really wanted to partner with an organization that we were passionate about that was Black owned. And so Block Love does an amazing work and amazing job in our Charlotte community. And if you're not in the financial means to do so, we totally understand. But if you have any form of social media, we would greatly appreciate if you, you know, share our post on Instagram onto your stories, share our post on Facebook, hell, even just, you know, telling one of your friends, telling your neighbor, telling your coworker what we're trying to accomplish. We're committed in the month of February to matching every single donation that gets to Block Love, whether that be monetarily or if you choose to purchase something off of their Amazon wish list, which will always be listed below in the show notes. Brendy and I really want to put kind of our money where our mouth is in terms of giving back to communities that truly need it. And it's something that we are looking at doing long term once we hit post-grad life and are able to, you know, give more and spend more time giving back to the community. So with that being said, we are having the founder of Block Love CLT on the podcast next week. So any questions that you want to ask them, please hit us up in our DMs, text us if you have our number or email us. We are happy to ask them during the episode. I know that a lot of times people want to know, you know, directly where the money is going to. So that will be the perfect time to ask any and all questions. Um, We're really excited for that episode to come out and we're really excited to be partnering with Block Love this month. Um, And I think what better way of, you know, celebrating the month of Valentine's Day, celebrating Black History Month than partnering with an organization that has love in the name of it. That's what we want to do. That's, you know, one of our missions on this podcast is to spread love, spread positivity. So with all of that being said, please donate 
please send us your donation. That way we are able to match it. And then hitting on the last note, social media. Please, another way to support us beyond listening to this podcast is to hit the follow button on our Instagram, hit the like button on our Facebook, and then subscribe through Apple Podcasts if that is where you listen. You liking our post, you sharing our post, whether it be, you know, an aesthetically pleasing picture that we post on our Instagram or the guest of the week or a quote that you find mesmerizing, that really supports us in a different way and gets us into the hands of people who could, you know, really listen to us, get themselves educated. Um, And that's really what our overall mission is to get into, you know, the ears of as many people as possible. And social media is one of the greatest ways that we can do that by spreading our mission and spreading our name. And we need your help to do that. So please follow us at Not Your Average BS on Instagram. Like I said, we also have a Facebook um, page, Not Your Average BS. You can like us there. That way you're able to share our posts and, you know, utilize your own social media. If you're listening to our episode, please screenshot and put that onto your, you know, your stories or, you know, your feed. So a little goes a long way and we greatly appreciate you all. With all of that housekeeping business aside, Candace Chambers is currently a PhD student in curriculum and instruction at UNC Charlotte. And Brendy and I came across her actually through an email that all of UNC Charlotte grad students were given or sent rather um, about a little over a month ago now. And it really caught my eye because Candace does a lot of things. She has a very impressive resume that starts all the way back at Jackson State University in Mississippi. And from there, she really honed in on her love of literacy, her love of English. She talks about that nonstop throughout the episode today. She is the CEO of Educational Writing Services. It's a business that she started in order to provide quality and effective college coaching and writing instruction for students through community literacy. She is also a part-time instructor at a couple of different community colleges where she'll talk a little bit about in today's episode. And then one of the most eye-opening things that really caught Brendy and I's attention is that she's currently an English instructor for Correctional Education Composition Program based out of Ashland, Ohio. And here she works with incarcerated students who are trying to better themselves and trying to get an education while they are incarcerated. And Candace talks numerous amounts of times throughout today's episode, the importance of programs like these for those who are incarcerated. That way, whenever they do come out of the time they serve, they have that education as their foundation to hopefully either further that or get a job or just have a safe spot to land whenever they do end up leaving wherever they are at. And so I think that that speaks to Candace's dedication to the education field and how much she wants to spread the importance of literacy. I think that before I listened to today's episode, I didn't realize necessarily how much of a privilege it is to have access um, all of my life to things like composition classes or writing classes or speech classes. And it's really important that that's the foundation of, you know, today and tomorrow students because there is so much power in English. I have a few friends who who are English instructors at the middle and the high school level. And, you know, the stories that they share really make an impact on students' lives. And Candace is 
really doing a lot of great work. Um, and, you know, there's no greater power than the power of education. And so I hope that today's episodes provides you with some insight to maybe a field that you weren't as knowledgeable about. And Candace was also named a 30 under 30 for the International Liter- Literary Association. It is a mouthful, but I think that that speaks to her dedication to the field and how much she has accomplished and how much she is going to continue to accomplish. So sit back and I hope that you enjoy today's episode. Without further ado, welcome Candace Chambers to the podcast. Candice, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm really excited to speak with you. All right. It's good to be here. I'm glad to be here today. So jumping right into our appetizer, if you're new to the podcast, this is just an app, resource, website, basically whatever you want it to be that you use and recommend. And it can be kind of related to like today's topic or something that you use in your personal life. Okay. So my appetizer is The Magic of Thinking Big is a book by David Schwartz. And I really like this book. Um, it gives practical tips on how to train your mindset to think big and not have fear and go after your dreams. So I highly recommend it to listeners. That sounds really good. And I feel like for like a lot of college age or people who might, you know, just be starting out in their career, like that's a good book for them too. So um, getting into today's episode, Um, We wanted to ask, and this is a question that we ask all of our guests. It's kind of a trick question. Some people struggle with it. Some people do really well with it. But the question is, who is Candace Chambers without titles? Like, how would you describe yourself? I'm laid back. Um, I'm a 27-year-old female who enjoys painting and candles and traveling. And I'm just, I'm really to myself, honestly, and I'm, I'm a good friend. So I think I'll just describe myself as just someone who's, I won't use the word chill, but I will use the word chill <laughs> just because I just like to relax and learn about real estate and money and traveling and art and things of that nature. So that's who I am without the title. Awesome. Um, and kind of getting into the title. So you are a current PhD student. Um, and what has the journey been like to getting your PhD? And did you always know that you kind of like wanted to reach that high level of education from a young age? Or did you kind of figure it out along the way? So I like the way you put that. I figured it out along the way. Um, the word that I would use for my PhD would be challenging. Um, that would be the word. And so when I was in undergrad, probably like a junior or a senior in college, I wrote on my bedroom mirror, Dr. Candace Chambers, PhD, and CEO. So I put that on the end. So I don't know where that dream came from. I just wrote it on my mirror. And I had a mentor in undergrad who was like, Candace, you know, I can see you getting your PhD. And I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> like, okay, I know I'm smart, but I never really thought about a doctorate. So um, after she told me that and she uh, mentored me into getting my master's, then I kind of decided, like, I think I'm going to go for the big boy and I'm going to go ahead and go for my PhD. So, you know, being in the PhD program, like I said, it's been challenging. It has allowed me to grow personally and professionally, but I would say I've learned more personally, honestly, um, throughout the process as far as boundaries and taking a long time and self-care and things of that nature that I can transfer in other areas of my life. So that's pretty much how the journey has been. Like I said, it's really developed me as a person. We do research and, you know, read books and write, but I think 
looking back on the experience, I wouldn't have traded it for the world just because of who he has developed me as a person. And so when you got your master's, was it in like the same, like, cause you're doing curriculum and education, I believe. So was the master's program the same or how did you kind of like get into that field specifically? So for my undergrad, I did English education. I'll start there. I did English education for secondary ed. So, um, you know, learning about how to teach middle school and high school students English. And so I decided like, oh, I like this population, but I think I want to learn how to teach college students. So my master's degree was in still in English, but the field is composition and rhetoric. So it looks at teaching writing, like first year writing or just writing courses in general on a college level. So I was able to learn more about that population of students. And while I was in that program and like a year after, I started to think about my experiences undergrad dealing with like middle school, high school kids and then my experiences in my master's dealing with college kids. And I wanted to learn about who makes the curriculum to teach these children from the beginning? And even when they start out very young or when they go through middle school, high school. So like who makes the curriculum? Why do they do it? How is it made? And that is what made me go into curriculum and instruction on, in my, for my PhD. And so it's still in urban literacy English. So I still kept the English component, but I just wanted to learn more so like of the why and the how um, of the curriculums that I have been taught to teach. Yeah. And that kind of leads me into the next question, too. Um, Where does your passion for literacy stem from and how has it informed you professionally and personally? I would say literacy is honestly kind of intertwined in my blood, in my DNA, because Mm -hmm. my mom um, was an educator. Well, she still is an educator and my grandmother was an educator. So both of them instilled literacy, like many other students, um, you know, experiences very young. Mm -hmm. And so like reading Dr. Seuss books and the cat in the head and things of that nature when I was young, like they instilled the importance of reading and exploring new worlds through literacy. And so growing up in that environment, you know, where your your grandma's a teacher and your mom's an educator kind of can't help it (laughs) with learning and things of that nature. And I don't know how I adapted it as a profession. Like, I just think that, you know, growing up and hearing my grandmother talk about um, students in the school that she would teach in an underserved minority environment and just talk about like, you know, the gaps in learning that they had and wish how she could help more and things of that nature. So I think our conversations led me into the field that I'm in now. And so now, you know, I work to not only do literacy in the Ivory Tower, like in academia, but also extend it into communities. So that's pretty much um, how I started. Well, I really didn't start. Like they imposed it upon me and I just ran with it. Right. And so did you grow up in the Charlotte area or, or where are you from that you and your family were kind of exposed to these like literacy gaps that we're seeing? All right. So I'm from Jackson, Mississippi, and um, I grew up in really majority African-American community from K through 12. And then I went to an HBCU, historically black college for college. So I grew up around people that look like me, honestly. But at the same time, there was a lot of poverty. You know, there were a lot of academic achievement gaps. Um, Fortunately, I was able to kind of navigate through academic programs that were like magnet programs, but I still was there. Like I still was in the midst of the environment. So I was a student in that system. My grandmother taught in the system. And all my, a lot of my family members went through the same school system. So yeah, I'm from Jackson, Mississippi. Okay, great. And where did you go for your HBCU or for your undergrad degree? 
I went to Jackson State University, so it's in Jackson, Mississippi, um, and it's it's an HBCU. Okay. And would you, Shannon and I talk about this sometimes, would you say that like at your school, um, like your professors and teachers really exposed you to HBCUs more so, or is that like, how did you kind of decide where to go? Okay. So my family, like everyone in my family went to HBCU for undergrad. So it was like in the family tree. (laughs) So yeah. (laughs) And even though like my teachers and things, they didn't really like push us to certain schools. I just kind of knew I wanted to go to a school with predominantly African-American population. But also I would say that was rooted in academic success, you know, for a certain population of students. So like, I just kind of knew that's where I wanted to go. I applied to other schools as well, but I just wanted to keep the tradition, the family tradition um, and attend a historical black college. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so you have your own biz- business, educational writing services. Um, so when did you kind of get started with that? And what is the mission of your company? So um, after my undergrad, I went to the University of Alabama for my master's degree in English. And um, I went on an assistantship. So with my assistantship, they paid for my tuition fees. And then they paid me a living stipend. But in return, I had to provide some type of service to the university. So I worked in the writing center on campus. And I also was able to teach first year writing to freshman students my second year at the university. So while working at the school, working with the students in the writing center and teaching them, I was like, okay, wow. Like they're getting all of this writing instruction, like really good writing instruction at school. And they have been privileged, like anybody who goes to college is privileged to be able to have a college education, no matter what, that's what I believe. But (laughs) they're privileged to have access to this type of instruction and they are in college. Now, how could I potentially use the same formula or guide to extend writing instruction into the community? And so coming from the community where I came from in Jackson, like I said, it was some learning gaps, academic achievement gaps, access gaps, that I saw how literacy could provide a solution to some of those gaps and fill some of those gaps. So I took the model from the writing center because we would go on campus, different classrooms and do workshops to the students about things that we do in the writing center, writing and you know how to write effectively and things of that nature. So I took that model and I was like, okay, I'm gonna put it I'm going to do that same model in the community. So I grew up in church. So I started with churches. So I started going to different churches and doing these workshops. Then it extended into high schools, colleges, universities, and it kind of blossomed from there. So it was really based and rooted in taking, you know, what students are fortunate to receive while they're in college and transferring those skills into the community that could help students before they get to college. So how can I help students in high school, you know, get money to go to college through essays? Or how can I help people who are trying to go to graduate school with their personal statements? So like I said, I'm a writing teacher at heart, but I just took it into the community. So the mission of the company, yeah, so the mission of the company is to assist students and professionals with their writing needs. And we do college coaching editorial services um, for those two populations, but it's rooted in Uh, access to literacy. Yeah. And with the pandemic and so many things being virtual, have you been able to kind of like transition your work into like the digital space or how was it always, were you already having like some digital sessions or what has it been like, um, like just during this time? So like like how many people have seen, like the pandemic has made us have to be really creative (laughs) in this environment. And um, 
So when the pandemic hit, I was like, oh my gosh, like I can't go to a college. Like I can't go to a high school because it's closed right now. And so I actually started doing more individual college coaching and helping students with their essays through a virtual um, platforms around like the summer. So I had to have kind of think through like the whole March to June-ish, in, like, you know, uh, span of months where everybody was just kind of going crazy. <laughs> but I was like, how can I still help students? Um, maybe not in the same capacity. And so I knew that students were not going to have as much access to their college counselors right now, especially during the pandemic. So I started more individual college coaching online. And then I started doing more virtual workshops to different groups. So nonprofits, libraries, things of that nature um, to still do the same type of work, but just online. So it's, it's been different, but I like it because now I can, you know, continue with the same platform or, you know, uh, delivery method as we keep going. So it, it served its purpose. And do you have anyone that's like on your team or with your business that kind of helps you schedule these things? Or if not, then how do you manage your business and being a PhD student and taking time for self-care and sleep and everything like that? <laughs> okay. So I do most of the scheduling just because right now I'm like the main face of the company. And I will tell you the truth. I create a list, a to-do list for each week. And I print off a graph. Literally, I print off a graph and I write in my Monday, Tuesday. I have a planner too, but I have a paper graph that I write in because I have a lot going on. And so (laughs) I make sure that I wake up around like eight. I go to sleep for like 10 or 11. I do not pull all-nighters because I cannot function like that. And so (laughs) I say that I have to do whatever I'm going to do for the day is going to fit within those span of hours because um, I have to not kill myself. And so that's the best way that I can do it is to schedule, um, you know, all the obligations that I have every week. So I just do it on a weekly basis and I stay very organized um, and make sure that I'm really doing time management. But like you said, self-care, because if we're burnt out, we can't do anything. So that's something that I've learned in my PhD program, honestly, that has helped me with my business and other areas of life is that we have to take care of ourselves that stuff can wait. You know, like we, you know, if if something happens to us, it's done. So I have to take care of myself. And that's what I do. Just really strict time management. Definitely. I feel like so many people have been experiencing burnout to this year, like not only with school, but also the pandemic and some people, you know, lost jobs or loss of income and just all these different factors. So I like that you still are, you know, staying on top of your stuff and making time for self-care. That's super important, like you said. Um, So one thing I wanted to ask you about, too, is um, when we were kind of doing research for this interview, we saw that you are also a correctional education composition instructor. Um, And so we were interested to know, like, what more, what you kind of do in that role and um, kind of talk a little bit about the program that you're a part of with it. So I serve as a, like you said, a composition, not compositional, correctional education, composition instruction, a lot of C's in that sentence. But yeah, <laughs> but um, so in that capacity, I teach with Ashland University. It's actually in Ohio. So I do a lot of digital work, but it's in Ohio and we serve incarcerated students across the United States. So Ashland's program has been around since 1964, but recently, you know, with different innovations, we do more so online instruction now. Um, this semester, we're serving over 40,000, not 40,000, sorry, 4,000 students uh, across the U.S. And in that capacity, I serve as an English composition instructor. So 
Just like students would go to Ashton or any other school and take first year writing, um, these students are taking the same courses because they're working towards an associate's or a bachelor's degree. So they're able to use Pell, their Pell Grant like any other student would in the U.S. to um, fund their college education. They take classes on a little small tablet about as big as an iPad. And, you know, I've been working with that program for about about a year and a half now, and I love it. It's the best thing I've ever done. And it really, again, it shows the power of literacy because they're able, they write papers, they express themselves. Um, I help them with their argumentation and like using sources to back them up and support what they're saying and their voice, basically. And they're in a place that they really don't have a voice because they're incarcerated. And especially in the context of English, the class allows them to have a voice. And so I've had students say they want to make their kids proud, they, you know, their parents proud. It's the best thing they've ever done in their life that's not, you know, involving some type of trouble. Um, and it gives them a sense of like, you know, in like intrinsic motivation to succeed. And so that's pretty much what it is. And the United States federal government has now permanently uh, provided legislation to continue to allow students to use their pair grants if they're incarcerated for since well, the Bill Clinton administration took that privilege away um, during the war on drugs, but the Obama administration brought that back as a pilot study, but now it has been uh, instilled permanently that they can use Pell Grants to fund their education. So we're expecting more students to be in the program and the college programs will expand. So that's what I do in that capacity. I teach English just like I do in other capacities, um, but it's just with the incarcerated population. And so that work has informed my dissertation for my PhD. And then also has provided motivation for me to continue work with my business so that, you know, students can have the same type of tools of literacy in whatever capacity that they're in. Right. And with all, all the students that you have, is it kind of like a wide range of like ages or is it, would you say it's more like younger, like young adults or would you say it's more like older adults or just all ages? OK. For the prison population? Yeah. Mm -hmm. OK. They range. So it's funny because they always tell me like things about them because yeah. we don't know anything. We don't know like their crime. We don't know how old they are. We don't even know where they live. Like we don't know where their correctional facility is. Okay. But they tell me things as if we're friends. Right. It's so funny. Because I don't see them. They don't hear my voice. Mm -hmm. But we make some kind of a connection between words. And but they range in age. Some are older, like in their 60s. Um, some say they haven't been in school in 30 years, 20 years, so they're really nervous about using a tablet. You know, they're already nervous about going to school. And then some are like, you know, 25, 26, 22. Mm -hmm. And that's certain 15 year life sentences, you know? And so this gives them opportunity to have something to do that's positive in the environment that they're in. Yeah. So with your instruction is it and kind of with this program, is it kind of like, you know, there you give them a syllabus and their assignments because you said they don't like really see you. So it's not like Zoom or anything. So what does the instruction kind of look like each week? So basically they're modules like um, sort of like the Canvas page. So they have mm -hmm. modules that the English department at Ashland actually pre-uploads the information into the modules just to con keep consistency across all of the instructors, you know, and what we're teaching. So, you know, they have a major paper, like maybe every two weeks that they have to turn in, they have readings, they have a textbook, they have video lectures from one of the Ashton faculty members who create the curriculum. And my job is to provide them support, you know, feedback on their papers, places to expand, revise, things of that nature. So everything's preloaded, like an online class would be, but asynchronous, you know, with no video um, component to it. 
And then they just move through the modules each week and I provide them feedback each week. So that's how it's set up. And you mentioned how um, this program has will probably be expanding with, um, you know, accessibility to Pell Grants and being able to use that um, for education. So do you think that something like this program um, could be really transformative for like the United States justice system if it's, you know, rolled out on a much larger scale? Like you said, you only have 4,000 students right now, which is still a lot, (laughs) or 4,000 students in the program, which is a lot. Um, So what do you kind of envision for this or maybe how it could be expanded? But like, that's a good point that you bring up, like 4,000 students in itself is a lot. But if you put it in the context of the prison population, where we're reaching over a million people that are incarcerated, you know, it's a small percentage. It's really interesting, you know, like it's good on one front, but then when you look at on a larger scale, like we have more work to do, I'll put it like that. And so I think that Mm -hmm. Two things. One thing is for people who will be released, it's good that they'll be ha- be able to have had exposure to some type of degree program, whether it's a GED, a certificate program, associates or a bachelor's. Even if they don't finish, it's still good that they were able to be exposed to some type of like um, higher education to allow them to critically think about issues that they will be encountering. So we talk about bilingualism, we talk about immigration, you know, racism, things of that nature, and so it just creates more informed citizens. So research has been done that students who participate in this program have lower recidivism rates um, of going back to prison. And so I think it's good on that front. And then the ones who who will not be released, like I said, um, it just enables them to feel better about themselves. Like they accomplish something. um, They can have conversations with people around them that are, you know, positive and uplifting about the, you know, when they talk about the content that we talk about in the course. And I think just overall, it just provides just, self-motivation, like, you know, this builds people up on the inside. But as far as the United States, it could really create more informed citizens and people have jobs, people have more opportunities because they had, you know, it took advantage of this type of program and had access to it. And you mentioned that the work that you're doing as a teacher with this program is kind of leading into your dissertation. Can you tell us like a little bit about maybe what specifically you're focusing on with that? So for my dissertation, um, I'm interested in the experiences of other English composition faculty members and, you know, the supports that they think that they need, they may need in the, well, I say in the classroom, but (laughs) as they teach, because we're not in the classroom, (laughs) but (laughs) the supports that they need, how do they construct identity with their students, considering we don't have, you know, Zoom, we don't have, you know, we can't hear them, we just have words, how do they cultivate identity, why did they choose to work in this capacity, and just, you know, what what are their what are their opinions about the program and how do they think that they could be more supported in their teaching? And I hope that the findings can be provided to program directors or people who are considering having this program at their institution or community college or university and providing training and development to future teachers who teach in this capacity. And I chose English because English is my baby. Like I, I'm an English teacher and most, yeah. <laughs> most students have to take English classes when they um, are getting a bachelor's degree or even an associate's degree. So it's good to hear from faculty who are probably going to encounter many of the students who come through these programs and see, you know, of their experiences. So that's what I'm planning on focusing on. Nice, nice. And did you, so this, the program was already like essentially virtual to begin with. So you didn't really have to like make a transition with that or was it, were they doing in-person classes too before? So they, Okay, so they were doing in-person classes, but it wasn't in Ohio, but they always have had the in-person and virtual. So when I came on, I came on before the pandemic, 
So they were doing both, mm-hmm. but now everything is 100% online. So okay. I didn't have to make any changes. And the kids, I mean, the students who were already in the program, like the program, really, honestly, it just kept flowing. Even though COVID happened, Mm -hmm. they cut out the in-person, but the virtual was already there. So we were able to just keep going. Okay. That's awesome that it was just able to, you know, keep keep the flow like that. I feel like a lot of places and Mm -hmm. people that already had virtual activities or whatever in place um, were definitely a lot more successful. And I think it just kind of shows how how useful technology can be, especially even more in this time. I agree. I agree. Um, So you've also published Write Your Way to a Successful Scholarship um, to help students get scholarships and write better essays. And could you tell us a little bit like what that writing process was like and just how important it is for young people to have access to information like this? So I decided to write the book. um, I think it was around like 2017 after I finished my master's. And I knew that I had a lot of information in my head. I just needed to get on the page. And so um, with the process of the book, I just chronicled my own journey through college. Um, I talked about like, you know, when I was an undergrad, like the different scholarships that I was able to apply for and like, you know, just the continuous process of that. But I always knew that writing was a component of their process. And then I found out a lot of students did not apply for scholarships that had a writing component. So I wanted to teach students how to snag the scholarships that people don't apply for. And so (laughs) I wrote the book kind of like reverse psychology. So I wrote the book, um, (laughs) giving them writing tips, but also ways to find money. And then at the end of the book, I talk about like different ways that they could, um, you know, spend the money or save the money in in good ways, not just to splurge Mm -hmm. on the money. So that's pretty much how the book was. And I use the book as a instructional resource when I do my workshops. So they go hand in hand uh, when I do the workshops. When mm-hmm. I have, because because I have the book, so that's the book there. I have another one coming out, maybe in a year. It'll be for graduate students, so that's one. That one's for undergrad and high school students. But the grad student book will be how to go to grad school for free, because I did that too. So it's just more so pouring out the knowledge that I have and just giving it away. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I feel like that'll be definitely useful for graduate students too, because I feel like even when I was applying, I feel like. I struggled myself to to find things that I like qualified for and stuff like that. Um, so what is your like, I know you said you just kind of like tell your own story, but like how long does it take you to like write a book like that? Like that's a lot of work. <laughs> it's funny because like I took it in chunks. So I I did it. I didn't, I didn't give myself a deadline. But I just wrote when I felt like writing. I'll put it like that. So if I felt the inspiration to write something, I would just pull up my Google Doc and write it in the Google Doc. And so, like I said, I knew pretty much what I wanted to write about. I did do an outline of the major topics of the book. And then just, you know, over the course of a few months, like I was working at the time at another position. So when I would get bored, you know, at work, I would just kind of write on my book and <laughs> think about what would students need to know? Like, what do I wish I knew when I was an undergrad or high school student in the context of this scholarship process and writing? And so, like I said, I just took it in strides. I didn't rush myself. Uh, I had people to look over the book after I finished it, people that were close to me. And I watched YouTube videos on how to market it and how to print it and how to use Amazon. And I taught myself how to, like, I self-published it. So I taught myself how to publish the book, how to do the cover, you know, format the pages, things of that nature. And um, it went from there. And so people buy it, you know, it's on Amazon. I can market it myself. And 
that's how I pretty much how I did. I just took it in steps and used YouTube as YouTube school and figured out how to publish the book. <laughs> that's awesome. And we'll we'll leave a link to your book um, in the show notes for the episode. But that is so crazy that you could just find like everything you needed online, like on YouTube, like how to how to do the whole process. Mm-hmm. I did. It was great. I didn't have to pay anybody. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's awesome. Um so you were also recently named a literacy leader to the International Literacy Association's 2021 30 Under 30 list. And that's actually how Shannon and I found you, um, the UNCC article about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so could you kind of talk a little bit about your feelings and maybe your reaction on being named to that and what you hope for the future of literacy, of literacy field is? The award, I actually didn't know anything about the award. I had a classmate who's, who's a PhD classmate of mine who nominated me for the award. Um, so I had to send her a little bit of information about me and she nominated me for the award and so when I got the award I was like oh my gosh like I didn't really expect this on an international scale and (laughs) it was just crazy and so I think that you know sometimes when you start things or you have a business in mind or just even you know a decision that you want to make like oh I want to go to grad school like oh I want to travel the world people just kind of look at you like you're a bit crazy in the head sometimes on certain ideas and or they don't really understand the vision that you have for what you're trying to do and honestly it's not for them to understand and so when I started my company you know people would say well kids have English teachers like why do they you need to do that or like you know why do you need to teach people about writing? Like they do that in school. And so hearing these messages when I first started and I just kept trucking along and then now to see it recognized on a larger scale, it just goes to show like if you have a vision or a dream, like believe in your vision or dream and just go for it. <laughs> like, I mean, if it doesn't work out, oh, well, at least you went for it. So when I received the award, like I said, it was a great honor to see also to see other people who are doing similar work. And I think as far as literacy is concerned, um, I think sometimes we need to broaden the what literacy means. And so sometimes we conceptualize literacy as like, oh, that's what third graders do. Oh, that's what moms do when they teach their kids how to read. And it's like elementary school type of things. But when people know literacy skills, it helps them in every other area of their life. They have to do a resume for a job. Like you have to write on the resume. Like you have to fill out the job application. If you want a, like a promotion on your job, you have to write, most of the time you have to write like a letter or something to get a promotion you want to, you know, I don't know, write a letter to your mom. You have to know how to write a certain letter. So all of these different writing things that you do have different conventions. They have different methods, different knowledge that you have to know to put into the writing sample. And so with my company, you know, expanding literacy into the community, it might start with a scholarship essay. But now students know, like, I can get money to go to school. Now I have the confidence to write anything that I think I might want to write to give me a different opportunity. So it just opens these doors. And so I think that moving forward, as far as literacy is concerned, we can open up what literacy means and just, you know, use it as a tool, as a gateway to other opportunities. I think it'll serve its purpose. So, you know, it was a great honor and I'm glad to have received the award. That's so awesome. That's really exciting too. Like, like you said, like you just, you know, like didn't think you were going to get picked, like just thought you were getting nominated for it is an honor in itself. So that's really awesome. Um, and so you kind of touched on it a little bit, but what do you see maybe for like the future or I'm not going to say five-year plan, but what do you see like coming up for the future, like with your business or maybe how you want to expand your reach with it? 
let's see, I want to do it full time. I still would like to teach on the side. Like, I just love to teach. I probably always teach people there in Carcerate. I just love it. But as far as my business concerned, uh, I want to do more like community outreach as far as like partnering with nonprofits in like library systems within different cities and nations, because oftentimes those groups have access to larger groups of students. And so I would like to partner with more of those organizations. Also, I would like to get more like, honestly, like college students or young students who are mainly college students on my team, like to do the workshops, because I think one thing about my business, is I'm not too, too much older than the students that I'm talking to. And so I think that really pulls them in and I can kind of resonate with, you know, what the latest music is and I can incorporate that into my workshop or like, you know, things they like to do, you know, I can incorporate that in my workshop and it makes it a bit more interactive. So eventually down the line, I want to get a team of like coach, I call them coaches to do more so of the reach um, at, at these different workshops. And It'll provide, you know, college kids with, oh, I will pay. I don't like, I mean, I know people make college students do things for free, but I would like to pay them. So people like to just use college students for their labor, but that's another conversation. But anyway, I would like to have them on my team to make sure that we can spread the message um, for students um, in these capacities as far as like paying for school, not taking on so many loans, like how to go to grad school, how to take advantage of opportunities that, People who are already in college know, but also people who have been able to, you know, write scholarship essays or just learn the conventions, they can spread the knowledge. And so that's what I envision in the future. Um, as far as editorial services, of course, I would like to do more of those. I want more. I want my own writing center, basically. Um, so it's still expanding the same reach as far as like expanding literacy just in you know college and editorial services, the different two capacities. But that's what I envision. That's great. I I definitely think it's much needed. Um, even just seeing like, like in the in my grad program, for example, like we're all coming. A lot of us are coming from different schools, different backgrounds. So like, yes, we all got into mm-hmm. graduate school, but some of our writing levels or or you know literacy levels might be completely different. You know, just based on like our educational mm-hmm. experiences. So I definitely like that you said that it's right. something continued um, and something that you can always build on. So I think that's awesome. Um, Mm -hmm. So lastly, we have our tangible takeaway. This is just any parting advice or wisdom to the listeners. It can be about anything we've talked about today or something, you know, completely different, whatever's on your mind. (laughs) All right. So I would tell listeners, like I was kind of hinting at before, if you have a dream or a goal, go after it. Like it's your dream, it's your goal. And other people do not have to believe in that. Like they can say that you're the craziest person in the world. But if you really believe in what you're trying to do, like keep going. If nobody recognizes you or people don't even pay attention to what you're doing in the beginning, it is okay. Like we kind of live in a world where we want like immediate gratification or recognition, especially with social media right now. And I'm still learning this too. So I'm not just like giving it to you, but I think all of us have to just learn, like stay on your own path. Um, you know, things will come in time as you reach your own success. So just have your own plan and your own goal and just go for it. Like you're the only person that's stopping you. So that's what I would tell listeners. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Candice, for coming on the podcast today. This was a really great conversation. And I feel like a lot of people will learn something and be inspired and take away from it and figure out how to, you know, either give back to their community in, in their own way or, you know, just continue with their own path towards literacy. So thank you so much for coming on today. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. All right, you all. Well, that is a wrap on today's episode with Candace Chambers. We are so thankful that she took the time to speak with us. 
We hope that out of anything from today's episode, whether you learned more about, you know, specialized programs that deserve to be expanded in the United States and around the world, that you also learn if you have a dream or a vision, all it takes is you going after it to accomplish it. Candace self-published her own book by going onto YouTube to learn the process. So, you know, whether you want to you know, publish your own book, start a podcast, or whatever it is that you are trying to do, there should be no one or nothing in your way that says that you can't do it. So we hope that you drew a little bit of inspiration from today's episode from Candace's wise words. And with that being said, we will leave all of her information down below in the show notes, where to follow her on social media, where to buy her book, as well as where to buy the book that she had mentioned in today's appetizer. Just a reminder that it is Black History Month and we are partnering with Block Love CLT. We are matching every single donation that comes in. So please, if you, you know, got paid over the weekend, please consider making a donation of any size and we are happy to match it all throughout the month of February. And we will be back with another episode next week with the founder of Block Love CLT. And until next Monday, that's the BS. Mm-hmm.